Hey, it's Catherine from the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. And if you like what you're listening to, please share it with your friends and family. You can share it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and be sure to subscribe on SoundCloud. Now here's the show. You're tuned to 103.7 WPVMLP, and this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is the latest from Mount Erie. is 
left with this merchandise This is what my life feels like now Like I got abruptly dropped off on the side of the road in the middle of a long horrible ride in a hot van It was too full of confident chattering dudes And the sound of tires receding Taking in the night air I say Our relationship between our bodies and our food is just that, a relationship, 
a living thing that evolves, that shifts, and can sometimes feel as combative as conflicts within our families. For author Piper Daniels, her struggles with disordered eating were passed down to her, and while the relationship became a battle for most of her life, it has become part of her larger human tapestry, rather than a single thing that defines her. Here is Jesse Shires reading Piper's essay, The Return of Hunger. I can only say in the dark how one spring I crushed a monarch mid-flight just to know how it felt to have something change in my hands. Ocean Vuong. Disordered eating was as much a part of my upbringing as arithmetic or prayer. Each bland dinner began with the blood and the body of Christ. Every night, my mother served us the same meal, steamed chicken and vegetables, which were carefully weighed on a small white scale in order to track portion size and caloric intake with precision. Upon the kitchen counter was a cookie jar in the shape of a cow that mooed when you opened the lid. Only very rarely did it contain cookies. It was meant to be a lesson. It was meant to be a trap. Memories of mealtime are so vivid that even in my adult life, it is difficult to separate present from past, as though eating could only exist inside the same shameful moment. A girl is given a mantra, which is like a prayer. A moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. Nothing tastes as good as being thin feels. A girl is given a diet, and as trends change, another and another. Alkaline, Atkins, baby food, blood type, cabbage soup, Master Cleanse, Mediterranean, Paleolithic, Slimfast, South Beach, Weight Watchers, Zone. A girl is given aid, Adderall, Dexatrim, Hydroxycut, Metabolife. A girl is given the opportunity to push herself. The Ipecac diet, the finger down your throat diet, the swallowing of saturated cotton balls diet, the laxative diet, the cigarette diet, even the breatharian diet, in which nourishment is derived solely from sunlight and air. If it is as Plath ventures that dying is an art, then disordered eating is the central artistic medium in which girls are instructed and supported. As women, we pass this curse from generation to generation, enforcing the very practices that made us ill and held us down. For over a decade prior to her first pregnancy, my mother controlled her figure and her hunger by chewing sugar-free cinnamon gum and eating exactly seven saltine crackers a day. Pregnancy must have felt to my mother like being violently possessed. She tells stories about blacking out and coming to in the McDonald's parking lot, the flavor of burgers and apple pies on her tongue. She had nightmares that we were born so small and starving, we disappeared in the sheets. When it was time to be born, my mother's hips proved too small, so my sister and me were ripped from her body like bad spirits in a seance gone wrong. My mother did her best to make healthy choices while I was in utero, but I know plenty of women with mothers who refused to eat for two. Their daughter's first diet begun in the womb, where they grew from a cradle of bone. The great love of my childhood was my grandmother the well-meaning right-wing matriarch who firmly believed that beauty was a woman's greatest power. She took me to the Kmart Superstore every Friday so I could select another doll to inhabit my Barbie universe. By age six, I had everything a little girl could dream of. Dozens of Barbies, three Corvettes and a safari jeep, a spa, an ice cream store, and a cul-de-sac of dream houses. An embarrassment of riches, but for one thing. I f hated Barbie. Barbie's sexuality was confusing to me. Why the irremovable underpants? Why large breasts but no vagina? What did that say about vaginas? About breasts? And why? I wondered, did my friends make their Barbies and Kens scissor? Why did my babysitter enjoy making Ken talk dirty to me? Whenever we treat women's bodies as aesthetic objects without function, we deform them. Jermaine Greer. In their interactive multimedia collaboration entitled Doll Games, artists Shelley and Pamela Jackson describe the eroticism of their dolls, claiming they knew the dolls' bodies better than their own. The Jacksons speak of their Barbie's private lives as perfect. I identified with their hard, dumb inexpressiveness, Shelley Jackson writes. It was how I felt too. My real life did not show on the outside. 
The dolls clacked together, their bodies all beak, all shell. Despite this, everything about them was erotic. The Jacksons say of their dolls, their secrets were ours. In her doll-hating opus, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison writes, Adults, older girls, shops, magazines, newspapers, window signs, all the world agreed that a blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll was what every girl-child treasured. When the novel's Claudia is gifted such a doll for Christmas, it is with this breathless incantation. This is beautiful, and if you are on this day worthy, you may have it. What was I supposed to do with it? Claudia wonders. Pretend to be its mother? Eventually, Claudia rips that blue-eyed, yellow-haired, pink-skinned doll to pieces. In his 1987 film, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, Todd Haynes uses mute Barbie dolls and title cards to reenact the final 17 years of Karen Carpenter's life before her death from anorexia-related causes in February of 1983. The first title card reads, The self-imposed regime of the anorexic reveals a complex internal apparatus of resistance and control. Her intensive need for self-discipline consumes and replaces all her other needs and desires. Anorexia, thus, can be seen as an addiction and abuse of self-control, a fascism over the body in which the sufferer plays the parts of both dictator and the emaciated victim who she so often resembles. To those who would argue that anorexia is about emulating the slim figures of movie stars or desperately attempting to become conventionally beautiful, Haynes counters... In a culture that continues to control women through the commoditization of their bodies, the anorexic body excludes itself, rejecting the doctrines of femininity, driven by a vision of complete mastery and control. To reflect Carpenter's bodily deterioration, Haynes slims the Karen doll gradually with a knife. No part of me believed the Barbies were beautiful. Every time I held them, it was an interrogation of their shallow superiority, their embodiment of the feminine mystique. I felt they had to answer for the damaging ideals their bodies engendered. I considered them monsters who deserved to be maimed. It might be said that the hatred of something as feminine as Barbie is not in keeping with the spirit of feminism, but then, I reasoned, these Barbies were not women. They were weekly reminders of a certain plastic perfection my chubby, queer, nerdy self would never attain. Dolls work like possession. The little girl's demon occupies the helpless vessel of the doll, writes Shelley Jackson. But for the life of me, I could never find a way in. One afternoon, pushed to my breaking point by a lunchroom bully who chanted, Miss Piggy, every time I ate... My sister and I declared war on our whole Barbie universe. She designed an amazing Chinese water torture chamber. I made bombs from thumbtacks, pop rocks, and tea lights, and left them in the elevator of every dream house. When at last we deemed their torture sufficient, we cut the dolls in pieces with pruning shears, dumped their parts in a fish tank at the end of my bed, and, because we were benevolent dictators, spent the rest of the week composing elegies. We turn skeletons into goddesses and look to them as if they might teach us how not to need. Maria Hornbacher. In my early 20s, I subsisted on a diet of apples green and whiskey's neat. Though I denied it at the time, thinness was the most important thing to me. I was seeing five different women then, all of them sexy and thin, and my anorectic mindset masqueraded as a mode of control. If I could live on 300 calories, I reasoned, I'd remain beautiful enough to keep each of them in my bed. My refrigerator was barren, my cupboards aching with emptiness. Keep going, the hot bartender told me. You're almost perfect. Then I met Jay, who hated thinness, who railed against the diet industry and eating disorders and girls with skinny asses. She would not accept my anorexia. She force-fed me healthy foods, spinach, sesame tofu, and compared to the other girls, her love for me felt positively nourishing. She wanted a curvy girl, it's an ass, hourglass body. 
is what she said. Yet, upon her living room wall was a framed poster of pinup Betty Page in a size small leather bikini. What was sexy about her, I wondered, to someone like Jay? Were I reduced to my skeleton, I would never be as thin as the pinup of her dreams. The truth about anorexia is that even when the behavior is dormant, the mind lies in wait for any excuse to resume. I took the poster as permission to continue starving myself. When we moved in together, she hung Betty on our bedroom wall. For the next six years, two cities, three apartments, Betty presided over us as we fought, f***ed, and slept. The fear that nothing survives. The greater fear that something does. Richard Sykin. There have been times in my life when I was subjected to serious violence. In the aftermath, it was as though my muscles never made memory to begin with. My body forgot how to be a body, refusing the usual body things. F***ing, dancing, bathing, touching, and being touched. After the violence, I was horrified by the time I'd wasted obsessing over my body's thinness, its sexiness, how badly I treated my body back when it was relatively unscathed. Rather than grow thinner, more delicate, I ate endlessly in bed, gaining over 30 pounds in a few months' time. My mother spoke a lot back then about how gaining weight, how aging, renders the female body invisible. It was all I wanted, to blend into the ether and disappear. When you're fat, no one will pay attention to disordered eating, or they will look the other way, or they will look right through you. You get to hide in plain sight. I have hidden in plain sight in one way or another for most of my life. Willing myself to not do that anymore, willing myself to be seen, is difficult. Roxanne Gay Often, what got me through the week was the idea of never being seen again. I left my house exactly once a day, driving the long, curving road that led to Carkeek Park. Wandering beneath the watery sun, I scouted locations. Here, I'd say to myself, just beyond the tide pools, where no child would find me. Here, just before the orchard alongside the salmon run. Every day, new coordinates for the same shallow grave. Every day, a new plan for disappearing. It was the lowest point of my life, but it didn't last forever. The evidence of a successful miracle is the return of hunger. Fanny Howe. After the emergence of multiple studies that linked Barbie's impossibly unrealistic body to an unhealthy body image in young girls, Mattel Inc. finally announced a campaign to manufacture Barbies that represent real women. Mattel Inc. would have us believe that they've invested in diversity and body positivity, but is that true? Can an organization that has knowingly compromised the body image of young girls have anyone's interests at heart but the shareholders and executives? One look at the new real Barbie, size 10, tops, tells me she is every bit as revolutionary as the new and improved man-bun sporting Ken. The real solution for girls is one that would put Mattel Inc. out of business. F*** Barbie. Teach a girl to code. I used to believe that there was a catharsis in destroying Barbie dolls, that it was a healthy way to reject the patriarchy. I see now that through such catharsis, the blame is merely redirected at women, in this case, women who embody the Barbie-esque. Why should any form of beauty be subject to destruction? A culture fixated on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty, but an obsession about female obedience. Naomi Wolf. The greatest lie the devil ever told is that women are by nature aggressive, competitive, and catty with one another. It is a myth that shifts insidiously from generation to generation. Every time women choose to invest in this myth, the joke is 100% on us. We need to stop making ourselves so thin that we slip through the cracks of history. We need to stop starving our spirits and intellects long enough to find a way out. 
queer women, while not immune to patriarchy or the male gaze, are slightly less entangled in it. We have more freedom to author and reject standards of beauty, and we're well-versed in forming communities in which we depend upon one another. Because of this good fortune, it seems we have a greater responsibility to light the way. As I continue to seek wisdom about my body and the bodies of others, this is what I know to be true. The revolution begins, the true level is revealed the moment women consent to forgive one another. Every time you set eyes upon a woman, look for the thing that is strong and beautiful. If a woman criticizes your body, disarm her with the sweetest, truest compliment you can muster. If you feel driven to criticize a woman's body, know that that thought was planted in you. Break free of it and feel love for her body instead. Most of all, be hungry. That was Jesse Shires reading Piper J. Daniels' The Return of Hunger. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, and you can find her award-winning collection of essays, Ladies Lazarus, wherever books are sold.
started her life in Ireland To a very young mother who couldn't provide Even very young she was good and quiet Teeth grew in brown from a poor person's diet And when she was five Her mother figured She'd have a better life In some house that was bigger So up for adoption to Larchmont, New York Taken in by my grandparents Into a family of seven Mary Everyone had to wonder, was it her nature, or it's something happened violent? My mother was older, the only one born of blood She understood things that only she understood Everyone else so unaware That every night she'd find her dad drunk in a chair Asking her to come sit on daddy's lap Alcoholism and all of that crap Who was to say if Marianne suffered The hands of her father as did my mother No one to tell, no one to ask It was the 1950s, no one taken to task What happens at home is a family's business As far as everyone was concerned She was their perfect little Irish princess Doctors had put in a new one in its place 
We all went to visit at Thanksgiving time We hadn't seen her since the accident We didn't know what we would find To my surprise, she seemed better than ever New confidence and a face put together Still she was sweet, but not quite as weak There was a lift in her posture and something clear in her speech And none of them said a word of the ordeal So I guess we all have different ways to heal And as we flew home, we felt a little bit strange And how we found the whole thing arranged But who is it for us to say what it takes for someone to find their own worth and will to go on? And as for the future, who knows what's in store? But our Marianne is silent no more, is silent no more, is silent no more, is silent no more. Spoon first started, we wanted to tell the stories from inside the restaurant. Not talking about what was on the table, but what was under it. As a result, we began by sourcing our material from people within the restaurant industry, and in an effort to avoid the cliché of photographs of food or pictures of chefs trying to look badass, we opted to have everything hand-drawn. Our founding art director, Katrin Doza, is an accomplished chef herself who has cooked in a number of James Beard-nominated kitchens. And most of the incredibly detailed and nuanced drawings you will find on our webpage are done by her hand. So it was with heavy hearts that we saw her move to Germany before we even got this radio show off the ground. Fortunately for us, though, she still sends us work from time to time, like the five-page comic she sent us this month. Her work is always somewhat autobiographical, but it often uses a fictional set of recurring characters. It often captures a side of the restaurant life we don't see regularly depicted in the media. Here's Katya talking about her latest work, which you can find on our webpage. The character Alex that the comic is about is one of the four girls in the girl gang, Petit Four, and that I write little comics and stories about. And this series started when I was dealing with a pretty culture-shock-induced depression, bad workplace scenario. And the kitchen's always been a place for me that felt super safe and gave me energy. And even when it was bad and even when I felt bad, I always could pull this energy out of that environment but then I was working at this really failing terrible (laughs) um, pretty much the only workplace that I've ever felt comfortable speaking badly about I mean it was just an abusive situation and I remember feeling like I was just covered in this slime all the time. Like I couldn't move. I couldn't think. I couldn't do anything because there was this thing outside of my control blocking me from doing that, doing what I needed to do. Um, and I gave that to my character, this feeling of something totally outside of your control, just incapacitating you. And so this little short series is about her dealing with that, dealing with depression, dealing with depression in the kitchen in kind of a surreal way. I used slugs to to show that feeling because that's kind of what it feels like is you're just covered in slugs and you can't 
move, you can't think, you can't be creative, you can't interact pleasantly with people, you can't take criticism, you can't find joy. All of it is just blocked by these slugs, this slime. Um, and, you know, we all love a happy ending. So the last panel is the slugs getting pulled off of her. That was Dirty Spoon's founding artistic director, Katrin Doze, checking in from Germany. You can find her new series on our website, dirty-spoon.com.
Shape note singing is a crucial, strange, and often ignored element of Southern culture. It doesn't shoot as pretty as the gingham tablecloths and bowls full of shrimp and grits, so most stories about the South tend to leave it out. But Luisa Reyes didn't. For her, it was a crucial part in her culture growing up in a heritage where music, the food, and the people seemed to blend together into one fabric. Here's Catherine reading her story, Dinner on the Grounds. The pastel-colored tablecloths are carefully laid out over the tables, and each aging family matriarch, with the help of someone younger, sets out her array of homemade dishes. The matriarchs and their families have traveled a long way, through national forests, over rough dirt roads, and with food contained in large cardboard boxes to keep spills off the back seats. It is time for a waning tradition, all day singing and dinner on the grounds. Members of our younger generation might be tempted to avoid waking up early on Sunday morning and preparing enough food for a small army. But it is an unspoken agreement that a quick pit stop at some Walmart to grab prepared fried chicken before the rural country church singings is flat out cheating. No sensible person will honor any store-bought contribution when there is a splendid array of homemade green beans, lima beans, and black-eyed peas. This is, after all, as deep a Southern tradition as it gets. The all-day singings and dinner on the grounds throughout Bibb County in rural Alabama are replete with the country dishes that are often the big draw of the day. Certain family members are known for their chicken and dumplings, while others are known for their delicious homemade red velvet cake. And more than once, we have driven down the highway and turned off into the red dirt roads, looking forward to which sweet potato casserole will be the best one at this week's White Clapboard Church. This tradition of all-day singings and dinner on the grounds has changed for me, from my college days when my brother and I would invite our always hungry and eager for our free home-cooked meal classmates to accompany us on our jaunts to the wild woods. Since the singing season coincides with the hottest and most humid parts of the year, May, June, July, and August, the food is typically laid out on tables inside the churches, and the appeal of air conditioning prevails over eating outside, fighting back large black ants that want to crawl over peach cobblers and green bean casseroles set out on a long row of gray cement tables. During the dinner on the grounds, we can see the family cemeteries where our ancestors who participated in the war between the states are laid to rest. The main participants of these singings tend to be the same, moving from one remote church to another. Sometimes the singers don't have to bring a dish. They just eat and sing. This makes one wonder if that's why so often the participants of these singings, unlike those of many sophisticated church choirs, include a large number of hefty and hardy men. Working men whose attire ranges from cleaned up blue jean overalls to blue jeans coupled with a dress shirt and tie. And who at times even outnumber the lady singers who are demurely dressed in flat shoes and a Sunday dress. The bearded gentlemen seem to enjoy the fact that in the shape note singings, they don't have to worry about blending in with the person sitting beside them. If they wish to beller out a tune for all the forest animals to hear, it's quite all right. Sometimes the one-room church sanctuaries will house a piano in the corner. The pedal might be broken, and some of the keys might be stuck, but someone will still try to play a hymn or two during the 10-minute break, since the shape note singings are a cappella. Shape note singings involve triangles and squares and circles that do not have the soprano line as the melody line. Because of this, I sit in the back hardwood pews of the sanctuary rather than in the square formation in the front. That includes the main singers, since I still haven't mastered the art of shape note singing. These a cappella singings hold to two main schools of thought regarding the art of shape note singing. Sacred Harp and Christian Harmony. The original compilers of the Sacred Harp and Christian Harmony books, the Hatfields and the McCoys, married a pair of sisters. Sacred Harp uses a four-note do-re-mi system, while Christian Harmony uses a seven-note do-re-mi system. And the proponents of each singing school hold true to their preferred style. 
Sacred harp is easier to learn, say sacred harp singers. But Christian harmony has a sweeter sound, counter Christian harmony enthusiasts. The wise ones stay out of the debate altogether and point out that the best part is the midday meal. The midday meal always starts at noon. After the singers have concluded the morning singing session with a blessing, people who didn't want to skip their home church services have enough time to skedaddle out of the city chapels and find their way to the backwoods church homecomings, just in time for dinner on the grounds. Traditionally, a southern belle is supposed to eat like a bird. At the all-day singings and dinner on the grounds, however, even a hummingbird is allowed to eat like a starving vulture. It just won't do to have the matriarchs thinking it is time to turn off their stoves and move into assisted living, all because they returned home with their glass casserole dish half empty. Everyone stands in line, leading to the white styrofoam plates that are piled high with pieces of egg custard, white creamed corn, homegrown tomato slices with fried okra, southern staples, dishes that require both hands to hold the plates from underneath, or else they might break and spill all over your clothing and floor. The all-day singings are indeed an all-day affair, and after the single hour allotted for lunch is over, the singers march back into the churches, ready to begin the afternoon session. The session usually runs for about an hour and a half or two hours after lunch. A few of the latecomers from the city churches stay and participate in the afternoon singing, but more often than not, Attendees for the afternoon sessions are rather paltry in number. Occasionally, someone will declare that the food was so good, we should all stay and sing until supper time. It is a simple tradition when all is said and done, comprised of two elements, singing and eating. But it is a cherished event for those of us who practice it. There is something unique about acquiring a taste for poke salad while singing historically rich tunes that evoke a strong heritage of centuries past. A heritage that leaps out of the wide rectangular hardback songbooks to remind us that no matter how worldly or city-fied we become, our southern roots run deep.
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2018. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. And the incredible art on that site is by Katrin Doza, Marianne Papineau, Corinne Pease, Nettie Fisher, Kelly Minier, and Paul Choi. Music in this episode by Mount Erie, Moses Sumney, Amanda Bergman, Luke Temple, the late Richard Swift, Matthew Deer, Villages, Clint Manzel, Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow, Sylvan Chaveau, Brian McBride, Adrian Linker, the Sacred Harp Singers, and Goldman. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles our website, marketing, and sources our stories. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, music, and conversations from the people who shape what we consume. Right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour at WPVMLP Asheville.